Good afternoon and welcome. My name is uh, Ujwal. I'm a principal solutions architect at AWS, focusing on machine learning for healthcare and life sciences. And I'm going to be joined by Brian and Karun from Bristol Myers Squibb. They are both associate directors over there operating on data lakes, R&D, and data engineering. And today we are going to be talking about how data lakes are built on AWS and taking a specific examples of how actually BMS did it. And we're going to take you through the process. So our agenda is going to consist of uh, uh, an introduction to our life sciences business, how we view some of the best practices when it uh, you know, comes to operating highly regulated workloads, specifically in the pharma R&D space, and then go into the BMS side of things, introduce uh, their business to you, and of course, uh, talk about some business challenges, some of the data lake projects they initially undertook, what were some of the lessons learned in the process, and go from there into uh, the evolution of the data lake journey and how it exists today in their ecosystem. And we're going to wrap up with some of the benefits that they realized from operating that data lake on AWS, and then what's next on the horizon for them. That is you know, something that we're going to talk about in the end. So let's dive in. When it comes to AWS and life sciences, the true value proposition here is to make it easier and more scalable for more and more patients to get the help they need as easily as possible. And that really comes from our mission to, of going from science uh, that operates in the labs to really the life sciences launch drug in the most efficient manner. And the ability to actually do that comes from our global infrastructure. So we operate a global infrastructure that allows you to operate Customers like AW, uh, you know, BMS actually have the ability to go global in minutes and then scale out those operations as efficiently as possible. Security, obviously, is a very important concern when you're uh, operating on um, any cloud provider. And AWS has the necessary security controls. Uh, we have the necessary compliance controls in place to make sure that you're operating in the most secure and compliant manner when, you, it's, uh, when it comes to sensitive workloads, specifically in the pharma R&D uh, space. Also, in the, uh, the real value of realizing um, you know, and getting that edge in your businesses is the ability to integrate machine learning and advanced analytics in it. And if you look at, about it, machine learning plays a role in every aspect uh, you know, in the, in the drug launching process, right? From, you know, designing uh, your protocol for clinical trials, or even before that in the early phase research where you're trying to identify molecules that are interesting for you to, you know, develop drugs. And then even in post-launch activities where you have the ability to design, you know, necessary campaigns, uh, commercialization of the drug, creating personalized experiences for your patients, and then uh, digital therapeutics. All of these areas have a huge role uh, or machine learning has a huge role to play in each of these areas, and it's really important to actually have the ability to integrate, manage machine learning tools and technologies to get that edge in your businesses. Um, the other thing we are concentrating on at AWS is the ability to actually go up the value chain and, and really concentrate on enterprise solutions. So when uh, developers really love to build with AWS, it allows you to stitch together various services uh, to create managed workflows. But to go up the value chain, we want to create solutions that are really enterprise scale. So solutions around clinical trial management or it, um, you know, around digital therapeutics or drug launch and commercialization, real world evidence, all of these require managed package solutions that you can deploy in your own 
um, you know, AWS accounts, and then operate at an enterprise scale. And that is something that we bring to the table quite efficiently. And this is obviously partner, you know, powered by a partner uh, ecosystem. So ever-growing list of specialized partners, both in, as system integrators and ISVs who provide either uh, specialist support uh, to build out these platforms on your own, or even uh, bring managed platforms uh, that you can then deploy in your own um, you know, organizations and take uh, the, the process of taking the drug to the market and launching the drug to the market really accelerate that through these managed platforms. So let's look at the value chain in a little more detail. And it begins, as I said, with early phase research. Now this is a, a phase where researchers are looking at billions of data points to found, find that one interesting molecule that can actually be taken down to the clinical trial phase. And this involves iterating really, really fast. Like this is an area where you're looking at multiple data points, you're trying to find out which ones are actually suitable to pursue. And the key over there is the ability to fail fast. You can't really experiment uh, on you know, different uh, iterations and then have uh, that backlog of having an environment that does not allow you to scale out. And AWS has that ability. If you think about it, the ability to actually get a managed uh, HPC platform in a matter of minutes that allow you to scale out these experiments uh, in an efficient manner is really critical. Um, the agility and the cost effectiveness with which you can operate these processes is, is going to give you an edge downstream, and that's really important. The next step is the clinical trial itself. So when it comes to clinical trial, there are various uh, steps, like designing the protocol or recruiting the right patients for your trial, identifying the cohorts of inclusion and exclusion criteria in your patient population that will allow you to you know, be successful in your trial process. Then comes manufacturing. So once you've analyzed the drug and, and you know what is required to actually take it to market, you need to go and you know, analyze and make sure your manufacturing process is down to the T. And that comes by integrating advanced supply chain efficiencies into your workflows, also you know, making sure that your uh, manufacturing process is uh, truly metric and you're trying to actually analyze the right metrics to identify the real backlogs and then obviously go from there into commercialization. So once your drug is manufactured, you want to go to market really, really quickly. And this involves uh, creating campaigns or awareness about the drug in the market, you know, trying to educate uh, patients and, and you know, tell them about the risks involved, if, if there is any, uh, about those drugs. And making sure that all of those information is distributed in a scalable manner. And then finally, the digital therapeutics area. So once you actually prescribe those drugs, how are you making that personal connection to the patient you're prescribing to? How are you prescribing the right drugs for the right conditions? And tracking the adverse events associated to the drugs as they actually get launched into the market. All of these areas really create uh, the full um, you know, value chain that life sciences organization um, can require. And as you would imagine, uh, the key over here is the ability to scan out multiple data formats and data sets. Gone are the days when life sciences organizations were just restricted to structured data sets, and that's not possible to do anymore. Uh, it's not efficient to do anymore because a lot of these data sets are unstructured, and you know, it involves analyzing different modalities of data, so be it social media data, be it images, or transcriptions that exist in audio format, how do you create that holistic picture of a patient? 
going from different aspects of the patient care into making sure that you're prescribing the right for the right conditions is really critical. And these types of data sets cannot really fit into, into a conventional data store. So what we are talking about is the ability to go into the petabyte scale or the exabyte scales so that you're able to you know, crunch out these data sets in an efficient manner. And then cost is key as well. Why do you want to maintain a high-performance cluster and only to realize you're not getting the full utilization of that cluster? Because most of these workloads would be spicy. You know, you would be doing these analysis in periodic batches, and you don't really want to actually restrict yourself to the limitation that your infrastructure is going to provide you to analyze such data sets. So it's really critical to think about serverless, microservices, and, and you know, decouple your storage from your compute so that you can operate uh, on both of those and scale both of those out separately. And the key technology that powers all of this on AWS are data lakes. So data lakes is not just about you know, ingesting all of the information into S3. It's much more. It's, it allows you to actually you know, create managed workflows on those, on those data lakes. Uh, it allows you to transform, uh, transform the, uh, those data sets into something that would be conducive for something like machine learning, for example. You know, not all data sets are, uh, you know, there's a huge uh, pre-processing step in most of the machine learning models you would want to run. And the key over here is just because you've got your data set stored on S3, you do not need to actually move that around into different storage areas because S3 integrates fairly well with all our compute services, including machine learning services. The other aspect in your data lake you would want to analyze is those data and then um, you know, analyze those data sets in co correlation to each other. So the ability to actually analyze them together using queries is really important. And AWS provides multiple query services like EMR, that's a managed Hadoop cluster that can operate directly on data on S3. Uh, Athena, which is like a serverless service to allow you to run queries directly off of objects that are stored on S3. And then, of course, our enterprise data warehouse, uh, Redshift, uh, that can truly integrate uh, with uh, data sets that are stored on the uh, data lake on S3. Uh, when it comes to data movement, that's also very critical. We don't want to subject our customers to actually building their own data movement solutions. So we have a lot of pipeline-based solutions and even real-time streaming solutions that actually allow you to move data uh, from your data stores uh, into AWS. And this is all about interfaces. So AWS does not restrict you in, in what sort of data store you have on-prem. As long as you have a, a predefined interface, let's say a database uh, on-prem that actually operates on a JDBC or NoDBC interface, or maybe a file system uh, that, can, that uh, you, know, you have an interface to, or maybe a service bus or a message bus, all of these have comparable services on the AWS side of things, and all you need to do is plug those services in in the right side, uh, uh, type of interfaces, give it uh, the right permissions to talk to your data source, and then we will do the job of actually moving those assets over to AWS so you can you know, catalog them, store them, secure them, and all of the other things that I mentioned on the slide here. Um, so let's uh, look at uh, the next uh, you know, uh, level of automation in this entire data lake creation. And we launched uh, this through Lake Formation. This was a service we launched uh, a year ago, and this is around automating that entire process of going from ingesting these assets from your on-prem system or other data stores that are lying in other environments, making uh, you know, managed transformations run in an automated manner. So if you want to transform your data, flatten it out, you know, remove redundancies, 
uh, or actually you know, de do things like deduplication. Those kind of transformations can run in a managed way uh, through lake formation and uh, through its fully, integration, uh, fully integrated capability of AWS Glue. And then going from there into securing and cataloging your data. So if you have you know, assets that you want to make sure that the right people uh, have access to, uh, through IAM policies that are fully integrated within Lake Formation, uh, it allows you to actually you know, take that uh, control in your own hands, and you will have full visibility into who has access to that data at what point of time. And then, of course, uh, you know, giving you a managed way to query that data. So if you have those assets already stored, you would want to actually correlate them, you know, draw value from them. Uh, so querying that data by having row-based uh, row and column-based access is all possible through uh, Lake Formation. All of these things were possible before uh, Lake Formation was not around using services like AWS Glue, Amazon S3, IAM. Uh, but with Lake Formation, we have created an automated layer or a managed layer on top of these individual services so that this entire thing actually gives you a dashboard experience. So you go into there and you see a dashboard actually manages your data movement, your data transformation. You have full visibility into who, ha uh, who has access to your data and how it's being used. And that is uh, um, you know, something that actually uh, makes it really easy for customers uh, to operate and build data lakes at scale on AWS. So with that, I'm going to invite uh, Brian uh, up on stage, who's going to take you through the initial journey of how BMS uh, envisioned data lakes on AWS. Brian? Thanks, Ujval. Really glad to be here. Karun and I work in IT at BMS, and we've been working together for quite a while. My title says that I'm the Associate Director of R&D Data Lakes. I also have a lot of experience having worked across our enabling functions, HR, and the manufacturing data lakes as well. And so I've come to tell you a little bit of a story about BMS because it helps you understand how we've evolved our data lake strategy to work with that. BMS has been around for a very long time. Um, I, I am rather old, and I'm sorry to say that it's untrue that I really knew E.R. Squibb personally. He lived uh, over 100 years ago. Our company's origins actually predate the Pure Food and Drug Administration Act. So we're a company that's comfortable with transition and changing through things. And about a decade ago, we laid out a strategic foundation that said, this is how we want to move forward into the 21st century full on. We said pharma is not a bad thing. Pharmaceuticals are a really good thing. A lot of strength, size, the ability to handle clinical data, work with regulatory bodies. But we're also seeing that the biotechs out there are really nimble and agile and can follow the science almost turning on a dime. And so we said we want to bring the best of both of those together. And we want to uh, align them so that we get the best out of both. And we coined, I don't know if we coined the term or took up the term biofarm. And we decided that that's what we wanted to be and we're gonna focus and integrate. And we're building that on a foundation that says we need innovation. Innovation in our science, innovation in the way that we deliver products to the patient. This is the way that we are gonna move forward because our number one priority is about helping patients. Helping patients in their struggle against severe disease. 
So as we looked at that, we said, okay, we can't boil the ocean. We have to focus our efforts. And so we did that by saying, okay, there are areas out there that the diseases come with high severity. The impact to the patient is very high. There's potentially a large group of people that are affected by this disease, and there are no alternatives. So when we brought those three things together, that said, okay, these are the things we're gonna focus on. We're gonna get right to the middle of that, and that's where we're gonna focus our science. That's where we're gonna look at to make our investment and where we need to find information and data as we move forward. Now, Karun and I work within the group that reports up to our chief data officer. We're in enterprise information, and more and more in the pharmaceutical industry and in the biotech industry, data is the key. It's how do I get to the right information, how do I get to the right data so that I can do the analytics, that I can get to the information that's needed, the insights. And so I call this slide our Bill of Rights. And this is as a data-driven group. This is what we're focused on. We need, at the right time, at the right level, on the right platform, to the right group of people, we need, with the right quality and control, the data. So that puts a, a very high level and a very high bar on us as data preparers, or as those who are getting the data to our scientists to move with speed and agility to deliver that data. So what was challenging us? It's easy, right? We just do this and uh, we, we run with our old processes. Our scientists were saying, I can't even find the data. Oh, it's here? Oh, I didn't know that. We needed to be able to search for the data, a catalog that really knows everything that's going on. We needed to be able to do patient search. In the world that we live in, in the regulated world, we need to control data very closely, but our scientists are asking questions about, I wanna be able to know if we have a group of patients that are over 60 that have had this condition with that kind of testing done. We need to gather those cohorts and put them together so that they can ask the right questions of the science that's going on behind the scenes. I, I hate this word, bioinformatician. Our bioinformaticians need to be able to do analysis on the data, and we live in that regulated world. When we submit something to the Food and Drug Administration that says this is what we've proved out, we need to be able to potentially go back 10 years later and say, this is how we calculated that. We know it's true, we know it's right, and we have that data still available to us. And so that level of detail is incredibly high bar for us to manage. Real world analytics. You get data that comes in and is in complete disarray at points. It's structured, but key fields are missing. And the ability to bring that data in and manage it and merge it with clinical data, which is very clean data, and being able to ask those questions. And of course, monitoring that real world data. Sometimes we're going back to look and see what's happening in the market to, de to detect signals that may be going on that patient safety is at risk or that there's opportunities for patients to use drugs in a different way. All of this are challenges that we were facing on a regular basis. 
Ah, my slide build out animation. So we have data architecture standards. Everybody does, right? I don't want to drain the slide, but I want to draw out three quick points. We say don't copy data. Don't copy data. Don't copy data. Not because copies of data are expensive. One thing we love about AWS is the costs are relatively inexpensive. You can copy data all you want, and it's not very expensive to store. But what it creates for us is a challenge of provenance and lineage. How do I know that that's the real source of truth, that you haven't messed with it, that you haven't changed it? So we say, don't copy the data so that we can track who's got it. The other part of that is, when you copy data, how do I manage access? In the world that we live in today, we know that regulations are getting stiffer and will continue to grow that say, you have patient data, you have other kind of confidential data, are you sure that it didn't leak? How do I know if I copied it and gave it to somebody else and now I don't know what they did with it? So again, we're trying to manage with our architectural principles some things that are going on in the background and people say, oh, it's just one copy. One copy to you, five copies to this person, pretty soon we've lost control of it. So we say, no, we want to minimize that copying going on. Within these architectural principles, we started building out our data lakes. What I want to draw out of this slide is not all the boxes up there, it, but what I want you to understand is each of the big boxes were their own little data lakes. So we had a clinical data lake. We had a real world data lake. We had an HR data lake, and they were wonderful. And when we moved to AWS and we started building these out, we said, this is great. We went from 18 months to six months. This is wonderful. Wait a minute. I can spin up an environment in minutes. If it's a really big environment, it might take me a couple hours. I'm still taking six months to get to production. Why is that happening? So while AWS enabled us to move forward and to reduce costs, we said there's still a lot of cost. This is still really expensive, relatively speaking, given what we saw in the technology. So we said it's still too much in development. It's still too much in our build. The support is all independent. Now, I don't know how many developers and designers are in the audience, but the one thing I know is that if I give three senior developers access to build a data lake, they will use seven different designs to build the data lake because they can. And it's not that there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer, but when you design it, if you do it differently every time, there's a lot of investment and a lot of overhead. What I like to use is the analogy that says, we were building suburbia. Every one of our data lakes was a little house down the street. And at first that sounds really good until you realize that every house needs its own plumbing, its own electricity, its own landscaping. Where's the benefit in having that done over and over and over again? And in our world, when we do that, we have to go back to that architecture board and say, I'm building a new one. Can I get an approval? And you get to get on that schedule. 
I got to go to the quality people and say, hey, we're building a new one. Can you go through all the testing lineage and test it all over again so that I can go to production? For what benefit? Was it really different? Not really. So we said, hey, stop. Let's build an apartment building. We call it multi-tenant. So some of the core AWS stuff that's under the covers is consistent. It's simple. It's straightforward. I tease Karun, my, my coworker, because I say, all we did is we said, OK, we're going to use glue and S3, and we're done, right? That's a way oversimplification of what we've built. But the idea was, if we do it once, we can document it once. My quality control process that I have to submit to the FDA is done once for the plumbing and the electricity and the landscaping. I don't have to do that every time. And when my tenant comes in and says, I want to put something different on the wall, that's great. All you need to do is prove to the FDA that what you put on the wall was right. I don't have to prove that the water and the electricity is all done over again. It saved us a tremendous amount of effort, and it gave us some consistency across our lakes. One of the things that we found is democratization of data is somewhat dependent on how that data is being ingested and refined and published. So when the HR data comes in, if it's done in a completely different manner than what's done over in my manufacturing and I want to combine that data, I may be stumbling over design principles that really weren't of great benefit. They were just different. So I end up spending extra effort on that. What we did is we said, OK, let's take some of those core components and rip them out and say, these are data lake enterprise components. These are things that we're just going to reuse every time. And if you want to build out a tenant, you come in, you just configure some things, and voila, it comes up and it runs. We were able to move our development. We reduced our development and support costs 30%. And that's conservative. We're being careful how we, how we market that. But we are seeing even greater numbers than that as we go forward. Because what we've done is we said, it's a simple way of doing it. Do it this way. Yes, there's a million other options you could use. But let's do it this way. Let's configure it this way. And we can manage it. It reduced that development. It reduced the, the total cost of ownership and our maintenance. It's given us an insight and a, and a growth with our quality teams. When I walk in and talk to the architecture and the quality teams, they go, are you using EDL? Yes. You're good to go. And I've simplified the whole process of being able to deploy something into production. The funny thing about this was, when we started this journey, we were just worried about reducing our total costs on, the, on building out a data lake. And using our microservices, we did that. We saw that come up, and we said, wow, this is really great. But as we did it, we also began to go, you know, this data integration that we're doing for data lakes is a lot like what we're doing between transactional systems. So we started going, wow, we could use this same functionality for an integration hub. It doesn't have to be just for analytic data. We can use it between two transactional systems. I need to move data from my HR system to my finance system. I can use this. And as we went forward, we said, hey, as we look forward, 
our reference data and our master data hubs, as we begin to bring those in, they can leverage the same technology, they can leverage the same design. And now we're starting to see some real big dollars. Over the seven year period, we're estimating as much as $20 million of savings. Huge investments by simplifying what we were trying to do with AWS and leveraging it. Now, the, the funny thing about it is, in the midst of this, we're still able to get the scale and the power of AWS. We've been able to do some things and ingest data in record time that we couldn't have done otherwise. So the AWS Glue and the S3 and all the other services that we take advantage of still has that virtually infinite scale that we want to get to. We've just consistently applied the design that we wanted to. This is EDL 2.0. We're getting all this data in from all of these places. We say, OK, ingest it, load it, throw it into S3. We're then able to manage it on the sides with our governance and our info security, all the controls that we need, our DevOps folks who say, hey, this is how we play in AWS. This is how we work in our environments. This is our core EDL services. This allows us to persist the data, to refine the data, transform it, do data quality checks on the data, and publish the data. Our big deliverables are, can I find it? And we have a data discovery tool that allows people to find the data that was in the catalog, other ways that we've cataloged that and made it searchable for them. We can provision that data very quickly for them when they need to do individual analysis. They can get to it and they can do the reporting that they want. And this is democratized across all of the different groups that have access and all of our approved ways of using it. Um, Bristol-Myers Squibb, we kind of joke sometimes that we have two of everything, and it seems that we have two or three or five of everything when it comes to reporting tools, and people have different ways of wanting to use it, and that's fine. And we found that we can support that because of how we built the data lake. I'm going to invite Karun up to kind of spin all of the details that underlie this beautiful story. Um, and Karun's really the architect of what we built out here and has uh, the, the depth of knowledge of what's going on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. So there are a couple of terms that were used by both Ujwal and Brian, and I want to focus on really three key things. Multi-tenant. Second is the set of microservices that we're talking about, and eventually what is the benefit that BMS as a whole is getting from all of these capabilities. Um, from a multi-tenant perspective, I'll, I'll put it from a day in the life of a tenant, if you will. A tenant is nothing more than a logical block. Right? It, could be a line, it could be a domain, it could be all of R&D, it could be all of commercial, it could be a set of capabilities or functionalities within um, uh, within the HR ecosystem, or it could be explicitly a very subset of functionalities within a given domain. Right? Um, a tenant can come in and say, great, we're setting up a tenant that gives you the boundaries with which you can operate from an administrative perspective, from a developer perspective, from a DevOps perspective. And as a tenant, the individual tenant resources have the ability to go through and define a set of jobs. Um, a job is, again, an atomic set of steps that get executed in sequence or in parallel, 
And each step is then capable of doing a multitude of different things. And we'll go through in detail what those individual steps are. Um, from a tenant perspective, again, the, the means with which we enable and empower our users is a browser. So Brian talked about two tools, S3 and Glue. The third one is Chrome, our browser, the default browser that we end up telling our users to come through. If you have a browser, if you know where to get to, to the Enterprise Data Lake Services UI, you are in a position to empower the ingestion of data, the data quality checks that you need to apply, the transformations that you need to do on it, and eventually persist it. And if you need to run esoteric custom capabilities on it, plug those in as well. We'll go through what those are. Okay. Um, how did we make all of this happen um, at the end of the day? Uh, we talked about what the multi-tenant is. Um, it's essentially a browser-based ability to go through, configure, define, run, execute. And more importantly, one last thing I forgot, is to be able to promote from dev to test to production with a click of a button from a configuration perspective. Right? Um, all of this doesn't happen out in the ether without something behind it. The microservices are really the crux of what we uh, run all of Enterprise Data Lake services on. Um, the slide before it was really the business end that Brian was talking about. This is the technical uh, money slide, if you will. And it's busy, but I'll, we'll pare this down through subsequent slides, and we'll go through them in, in, in detail. Uh, in a nutshell, going back to what Brian had started with, it's S3, which is our enterprise data lake, uh, which is where the data sits. Uh, the services is nothing more than a combination of a bevy of AWS native tools. Um, most of them are serverless, except for one exception, and we'll get to that. You're dealing with S3 that contains our web application. You're dealing with Lambda that contains the functional logic that says, how do I access the UI? What am I doing within the UI? How do I trigger the jobs? How do I manage the jobs? And really, the workhorse in all of this is Glue. Um, you'll notice that Glue is dispersed in a couple of different places. It's not in any one particular location. The key thing for that really is the true nature of microservices. You can go through and take Lego blocks of logical functionality that run the gamut of your data lifecycle and say, plug it in into different steps, into different jobs, and essentially, at the end of the day, even be able to orchestrate all of those jobs together. Right? Amongst all of this, really, the only one 24-7 infrastructure that we have running is an RDS instance, and obviously it's backup, right? Um, that RDS instance contains um, information about who you are as a tenant, the authorization rules, the whitelists that you're um, allowed to operate against, um, your job definitions, your steps, uh, what those steps translate to, the runtime history of what happened for any given job over a period of time, what steps executed, what files did you get through, what was the output, how did you daisy chain all of these things together, right? Um, and we'll go through a bit more detail into, the, into the, the core concepts of what those microservices are across the gamut, uh, from ingestion, from ingress all the way to egress. Um, the one other beautiful thing about how we defined our jobs is to be able to go back and say, you can ingest data from anywhere. Um, once you've ingested it, you can daisy chain that data set to a subsequent downstream step. Uh, you can either take one file from one step somewhere else, you know, piggyback against you know, a file from a DB, a file from a REST endpoint, and a file from a S3 or a on-prem uh, network mount, and bring all of those three files together to do some work on it, do some transformations on it, and eventually either persist it into a published state in S3, or more importantly, take it out and send it to an RDS instance. From an ingress and egress perspective, the patterns are really three things that we started with. Uh, we have data sitting in uh, files, uh, in file systems, S3 may be the, the predominant one, uh, SFTP endpoints. 
we have data sitting in JDBC um, ecosystems, uh, both on-prem and on RDS or AWS instances, and pretty much REST endpoints. So one thing I want you to keep in mind, anytime I talk about any of these three things, we've built essentially a browser web page that says, I've got a database. What is the endpoint for that? What are the data points that I need to go through? If you go back and look at a JDBC call, what is it? What's my URL? What's my ID? What's my password? What are the type of SQL statements that I'm looking to run against it? Um, I can go back and get a full load against a single table. I can go back and get a delta load um, based on some logistical column that we will manage and maintain for you that says, last time you ran it, you got up to here. Now go back and do else. Um, from a file perspective, same concepts. The ability to do a full load or an incremental load. Uh, from a REST endpoint, same concept. The ability to go back and hit a REST endpoint and say, get me everything or get me deltas. Um, one of the key things that you begin to appreciate very quickly, the same constructs you use to get data into the, into the data lake can be the same constructs you use to put data out of the data lake if you need to send it somewhere else. So this goes back to one of the key tenants that Brian had talked about where that pattern comes in very handy when you're looking at integration hubs or RDM, MDM ecosystems. It's not just data lake, it's data movement. Where else can you use this and how naturally easily can it go fit into that? Right? When we started out this journey initially, we were looking at it with, uh, keep in mind this is about a 16 month effort from literally nothing to where we are today. Uh, we started with a uh, four week development sprint um, agile cycle. Uh, where the sprint started four weeks out, we were done. We took a little bit longer than the traditional two to three week um, agile sprints because of the, the volume of the framework that we had to build from nothing at one point, right? Um, the, when we started this initially, we came back and said every build that we put out translated to a glue job, right? So we're, I believe, roughly at version 1.16, if I'm not mistaken. So that's the number of builds that we've gone through in the last couple of years. When we started this initially, we went with, hey, bring one table, one database. Uh, bring one REST endpoint or multiple REST endpoints. And then we realized, look, if we need to go back and bring a schema, or if you need to bring back multiple schemas, I don't want to have to sit there and do step one, step two, step three, step four. That's death by a thousand clicks. How do we improve on that? So we eventually ended up going further out and said, how do we start forking through threads? The ability to run things in parallel. Keep in mind, we're running this on Spark. Uh, it's Scala native. Um, so data frames are our best friends in this ecosystem. How do we leverage, at the end of the day, uh, the DPUs, the executors, and the nodes to ensure that we're bursting out as much as we can? Um, to give you an example, in one of the database ends of it, um, this was recent, about two or three months ago, we ended up hitting a manufacturing ecosystem that had roughly 12,000 schemas. And I know there are folks in here, I'm good on that number, right? 12,000 schemas roughly 600,000 tables, if I'm not mistaken. And it came down to literally one web page that the user would go in and say, here's my JSON config that conforms to a predefined DSL. You put that in, you hit run. We pulled in 600,000 tables on demand. Right? So the power, the flexibility that you have in abstracting not just Brian's point of view, which is abstract the infrastructure, Glue gives you that, by giving you both the runtime Glue ecosystem on either Spark 2.2 or 243, and now obviously the, one, the standard, the 1X and the 2X ecosystems. But beyond that, abstract the logic that you need to go through to be able to get this data out. Uh, going back to Brian's point, you put three developers in a room, uh, he's taking a conservative estimate that you get seven different formats of it. I've seen multiples of that come out where there are different ways that people can think of doing the same thing. Nothing wrong with it, nothing inherently biased about it. It's just as humans, we're capable of being creative. 
cut down on that variability, cut down on the support cost, cut down on the runtime aspect of having to be on the hook for maintaining it. Um, when you go back and appreciate the scale with which we did this, one of the key things was dumb down the ability to make this complex. Simplify the ability for an end user to go in and say, here are my parameters, here are my tokens, here's what I need you to go bring, and here's where I need you to put it in. Put it into a browser, hit run, watch it. If you want to schedule it, go ahead and schedule it, validate it, and once you're done validating it, click a button and deploy it. Right? Um, the ingress, egress, again, anything you're doing from a uh, ability to ingest, you're doing the inverse and the ability to put it back out. Uh, REST was a little bit interesting. We went through, we uh, do the standard uh, Salesforce, the Viva platforms. Uh, we have the ability to go get um, data from pretty much any on-prem REST endpoint that's capable of getting data. Uh, if, you've done, if you've dealt with uh, code from a REST perspective, you'll appreciate the variances in how you do pagination. That's also abstracted. If I want to go back and say, look, SharePoint does pagination very differently. You need to get a token before you can get to the next page. Viva does pagination very differently. Um, this is capable of saying, do you want to run things in parallel up front? If you come back with, yep, I've got 1,000 rows and I'm getting 10 rows per page, we can go out in a burst and get everything else. Um, our concerns have not been the ability for EDL services to sustain a heartbeat. Our concern was more on can the end systems handle the burst with which we go back to their endpoints and say, give us the data. Uh, we've had to throttle back. We've had to go back to the tenants and say, please, slow down your jobs, lower the number of DPUs, lower the number of partitions, lower the amount of threads you're running concurrently through configuration to ensure that you're not killing um, the end systems. Right. Great, you've brought the data in. You've figured out you need to do stuff. What is that stuff? And eventually, you, need to, you also need to know, you know that you need to send it somewhere. We've talked about the ingress. We've talked about the egress. What are you doing in the middle? Right? Uh, one of the first things that we looked at it as from an IT perspective, look, we're bringing data in as an IT for IT ask. How clean is your data? How good is your data? So we went back and actually looked at a real-world um, data lake implementation that's a generation before this one. And we went back to the folks behind it and said, hey, walk us through what are you qualifying as quality data. They came back with, here's about 20 plus rules, give or take, and here are the patterns that we're checking for, primitive data type, column headers, um, ranges, regex patterns, and things of that nature, lookups, referential integrity, along those lines. You distill all of that, it came down to about um, 11 data quality steps. Um, again, we didn't go back and say, we're gonna build code for this. We went, found open source third-party libraries that give us the ability to run DQ checks. We DSL'd it. We wrapped it in JSON through a UI and gave the users the ability to say, run DQ checks. Now here also we give the ability to the user to say, run passive checks, run active checks. And if it's a passive, here's your threshold. If you fail that threshold, it becomes an active. There's a good level of flexibility that the users have. In instances where you need to be able to do more data discoverability, uh, capabilities where you need to go through and say, it's not just the primitive DQ, I also need to run some fancy things. We started to integrate initially into a third-party product called Pexeta, where you can publish data to Pexeta, have it execute its project, have it give you back the results at the end of the day. Uh, that covers your DQ, your data discoverability, the data quality. At the end of the day, you still have to go back and say, I may have a need to transform the data. What are you doing to do the transformations, right? Um, this is where a lot of people struggle with what's the best way of giving end users the ability to change data on the fly with minimal amount of 
code wrangling, deployments, the whole nine yards. The key word that's in there is Spark SQL. We're data frame friendly, right? So we initially, when we started this in Q2 of last year, we started with primitive Spark SQL DSLs that we implemented that said, you know, do string concats, do string manipulations, number manipulations, things of that nature. Um, and then we quickly came to the realization that we could be spending a year doing all of these different permutations. Why not just give Spark SQL access to the end users, right? If you go back and appreciate the fact that you're getting data from a database, um, you could have a step that's getting data from a REST endpoint. You could have a third step that's getting data from a SFTP endpoint. You now have, within the confines of your job, three different data files. You can pipe all three of those, again, through a config in a browser to step number four. Step number four is going to sit there and go, let me do a union. In its simplest form, one of the most simple data transformations. Let me get selected. It's, the SQL for that is what? Select A dot something something, B dot something something, C dot something something from A comma B comma C. Where? Go to town, right? We gave the end users the ability to sit there and go take the data coming from disparate data sources, treat them as data frames, and once you apply them as data frames, go to town. If you can write SQL, your browser is your friend. Write it, click it, run it, have it spit out for you this composite end result. That's a union of all three of these files. Right? Uh, that's very powerful, I, and, and I want folks to truly appreciate where and how that comes in handy. Um, reference data, master data. You want to go back and say, I'm getting incremental data. I need to feed a ref zero or a end state data set. Here's a way of doing it. Right? Uh, we've run it against um, significantly large data volumes, both on the end state or the data coming in, and it's held up pretty well. We haven't really run into any issues. If anything, it's really when we're hitting the source systems to get the data that we start running into problem. Um, Spark SQL, it's an awesome tool if we learn to leverage it correctly. And uh, the key thing is this. The, the end users, the configurators, are using a browser to go in and go, hey, here are three files. What do I want to do with it? What functions you have within Spark SQL, you're enabling that within a browser, you're hitting run, and you're watching it go to town. We've talked about the ingress, we've talked about the egress, we've talked about doing stuff in between. This whole pipeline has been abstracted via a set of microservices that make up the enterprise data lake services. That addresses 80, 90% of our customer use, use cases. Um, early on when we started, um, we didn't have that maturity built into the stack. If a user came in and said, hey, look, I needed to go talk to some REST endpoint and I need to do quirky things, we didn't have the framework or the ability to sit there and say we can abstract it. Or in very specific instances, we had no business abstracting that level of capability because it's a very quirky domain capability. In those instances, we came back and said, hey, look, you can run your own code. Bring your code into the ecosystem. So if you're a Java developer, if you're a Scala developer, if you're a Python developer, uh, within Scala and Python, if you are Spark friendly, we will give you the ability to run all of these within the existing Glue job that you're running. Keep in mind, so if you go back and look at the Glue console and the AWS console, you will see literally 16 jobs that have been defined. Uh, EDL services 1.0, all the way down. Right? The user has the ability to say, I am now creating my tenant-specific job. I'm going to now bind it to EDL version 1.12 because that has everything I need. But wait, 
13 is already in the pipeline, when 13 gets pushed into production, I can make a switch of a dropdown to flip it from 1.12 to 1.13, and I'm done. Right? Um, in the cases where you're bringing your code, you put it in S3, you define an external step that says, plug in my external data processing logic because it's doing its own quirky things, give it as part of the handshake that's defined. Here are the set of input files that you've already asked for me to give to you. You go do what you want. If you're writing Spark-friendly code, you have access to the full uh, the driver and the executor nodes. You can do whatever you want at that point. And then when you're done, you put your S3 result, your final result files in S3 somewhere else, and you hand that back again. So one of the key things we do is keep, we keep lineage. Step one tells you what spit out. Step two tells you what I got from step one. Step three will tell you what came out of step two that I'm using it, and so on and so forth. Right? If you come back and go, look, you know what? I have this really quirky ecosystem that won't run within Glue because I have dependencies and libraries that you cannot bring in and run within your ecosystem. And if you come back and go, hey, look, I have my own compute platform. Can we SSH into it? If the answer is yes, we can come knocking on the door to go, hey, heads up. You asked us to invoke you. Do what you want to do. Come back and tell us you're done. Give us the data set. We know where to go look for the data set. We'll bind it back, and we'll build the full lineage into that process. So the top line on this particular slide really addresses that 10, 20% of use cases where the customers have very specific needs that we do not want to be abstracting, nor do we have any business abstracting. Give them the ability to do that. So, so far we've covered a couple things really quick. Ingress, the ability to do data quality, Spark SQL powered uh, transformations, the ability to run truly esoteric customer-based <coughs> custom code. It does a lot of what we're looking to do from a customer perspective. Well, what if you now come back and said, look, I've got, um, and commercial is a good inst instance of this. Uh, commercial has, as a domain, markets that are globally spread. Uh, we're dealing with about seven different um, global markets. They have a set of jobs that run um, Asia Pac, US, Europe, South Asia, right? Uh, South America. How do we go back and say, well, look, we need to daisy chain all of these guys together. We don't want to be sitting there and going, have them run independently and manage them independently. Um, the next evolution we took there was to go back and say, how do we go back and build um, a level of orchestration? Glue is now starting to support that, so a lot of this was built well before Glue came to that position. Um, so we introduced step functions. Again, if you go back and look at the AWS console and the Glue job definitions, again, we're not a big Glue catalog user, we're more of the Glue runtime ecosystem. If you look at the Glue runtime from a job perspective, there are 16 jobs that we officially support. And our goal, again, is to push the tenants up to a new version when and where possible. From a step functions perspective, we did the same thing. We really only have two key um, step functions where the state machine is changed on the fly. How are we doing this? We're giving, again, the end users the ability to go into a browser, define what that JSON looks like for a step function. And you're changing this, you're triggering this, you're running this on the fly without step functions running amok in your console, right? Um, that opens up a plethora of interconnectivity. You can go back and say, well, what can step functions do? Lambda is really the first thing. There are certain instances where, yeah, you don't want to wait three minutes on a, in a hot stack or 20, 30 minutes in a, in a really cold stack to run code for 10 seconds and walk away. Lambda may be a better choice, right? Um, invoke that through there. Right? So we're starting to explore where that goes, and then we'll talk about, again, what the long-term step would be. Uh, from a uh, ML, great, we've got all this data. What are we doing with it, right? Uh, we've started, again, from an abstraction perspective, look at how do we 
uh, given that we're running in Spark in Scala, how do we start leveraging Spark's MLlib and Spark NLP? Where we start abstracting what these APIs are, and in places where SageMaker offers a more powerful and better tuned algorithm, how do we leverage those APIs to do everything from training to modeling to eventually deploying a model for either batch inference from within Glue or on demand through SageMaker. Right? Uh, there's a lot more cool stuff that we're working with under the covers. Again, our goal is to see where AWS offers native services out of the box that we can start leveraging without us as BMS having to do some of these development efforts. Right? Um, we've done all of this. What did we get out of this? Brian talked a bit about very conservative numbers. Right? Um, and I, and I want to talk about uh, the, a bit more detail on three things in here. Um, reusability is probably one of the biggest ones, where we have one code base, one team, very finely tuned, driving awesome code at the end of the day that's getting leveraged across the enterprise. So if we have a bug, it's a double-edged sword. We head it across the enterprise. Um, fortunately, we've been pretty good about getting code out that doesn't blow um, in, that, in that type of a scenario. Um, that's primarily from a development perspective. From a deployment perspective, what are we looking at? Um, the reusability, because we're on the same stack, it's the same button. You click a button. An enterprise customer in commercial would be clicking the same button as an R&D customer would to say, deploy from dev to test to prod. Uh, when you look at the productivity, just imagine, what are you focused on? To Brian's point, you're not going in and building the plumbing for each ecosystem. You're leveraging what's there. There's an immediate productivity gain. Gone are the metrics that says you're looking at days, weeks, potentially months to be able to go from start of an idea to an endpoint. You're doing this within hours, within days, depending on where you're looking at it. Um, the, the initial gamut for this was to say, bring it up for data lake. When you begin to appreciate that data integration runs off of the same capabilities that they have the same need, uh, from an RDM, MDM perspective, it's the same capability. Uh, from a rapid data lab perspective, they're using the same stack. You soon begin to appreciate the fact that it's one ecosystem that's being genuinely used across the enterprise. Um, the cost savings from having not to focus on building it versus focusing on the business is phenomenal. That's something we have a tough time quantifying, but the value is inherently there. Um, from an infrastructure perspective, it's, uh, it's right there. We're running pretty much RDS 24-7. Everything else is on demand. Um, you pay for it as and when you start spinning it up. Right? Where are we going after this? Right? Um, Ujwal talked early on about lake formation. Um, we started this journey well before lake formation is out there. We're looking for the lake formation stack to mature uh, beyond just the ingress, beyond just the data ingestion part of it. Um, ideally, we want to get out of the line of business of having to write code. That's not our primary business. Our primary business, as Brian pointed out, is helping patients. Right? How do we start leveraging lake formation in its full stance as it starts uh, evolving and maturing it? Uh, the orchestration aspect of it, uh, there's quite a bit. Uh, we've barely begun to scratch the surface of that. Uh, there's conditional flows that says, okay, based on this, do that. How do we start driving some of that capability out? Um, there's quite a bit coming out of that one. Uh, the last one is the unicorn. Obviously, you've got a plethora of data. How are you driving inference and value? It's not just at the tail end of it. This is through the whole data lifecycle, from the point you're ingesting it to data quality, from a classification perspective to a transformation perspective to a model perspective to an inference value perspective. Right? Uh, these three things are what I'm personally keeping an eye out for what AWS is going to be announcing this week. Right? There's a wealth of stuff in all three of these. Um, I'm looking to see where it came out of, uh, what comes out of this 
um, next couple of days. All of this obviously didn't happen overnight um, or by a single person or a single team. Uh, we did get a significant amount of help, um, guidance, and guardrails uh, around us. Um, I know from folks within the IS team, uh, they've been the tip of our spear. Uh, they've gone out to AWS and asked what can, what cannot, and what are the limitations and how do we get through that. Uh, data architecture and governance helped us, again, establishing what are the confines of that data lake. What should that data lake look like? How do we bring data in? To Brian's point, how do we minimize data movement, data duplicity, and how do we ensure that we're keeping data guardrailed and protected the way it needs to be? Um, this is a qualified stack. For anybody who comes in and says, ITQM slows down your process, I have an absolute counter argument to that. They make you look good at the end of the day because they've put that check and balance in to ensure that you're writing, developing, and deploying quality code at the end of the day. Um, from a implementation perspective, we've had an awesome partner from Accenture. Um, they've stepped up, delivered some beautiful, beautiful uh, microservices that are, at the end of the day, absolutely being leveraged across the enterprise. Um, thank you again uh, for taking the time to attend this. Um, I'll hand this back at this point to uh, Ujwal. Thanks, Karun. What an excellent story. What a prime example of using the best that AWS has to offer into creating value for your own businesses. I'd like to give them a round of applause for that. Thank you so much. So if you love this session, you found this valuable, you are bound to actually like all the other uh, sessions we have focused on life sciences. Uh, it's running all throughout the, uh, you know, today and tomorrow. So I'd encourage you to go and check them out. And then uh, we are also having a dedicated healthcare and life sciences networking launch on level three where you can go and you know, network with like-minded people, ask your questions. We have an Ask an Expert booth over there that will allow you to get all your clarification and doubts cleared. And then we ourselves will be heading down there uh, to take any questions you might have about the session we presented today. I look forward to seeing you all there. Thank you.